I can offer this advice to anyone in the business, and they feel they should have gone further. They should. There's no should have. There's no would have. There's no could have. You do, you do what you got to do, and you know that's all that matters. But I did my first stand up there, and like 200 people. And I remember starting, and I'm doing some shtick, uh-huh. and some guy, some jock in the center of the whole house, said something like. Uh, uh, you're a dick, you know, they all laugh, you know, there's like a big laugh. And so I said something, I think I called him either uh, a pussy or the C word. I can't remember. Well, you're a whatever, you know? So I said, let's go out back to the alley and, you know, fuck or whatever. You know, it was, it was, it was not me. It was not even Bob Greenberg kind of material. I'm like, wait a all minute. All of a sudden, this... I mean, I've, I've never said since that time, my first time, I never said cunt or fuck before, you know, again in my entire life. But, but that crowd, ate, they thought that was hilarious. And it quieted the guy down. And then I was able to do my curly impressions or whatever I was doing. You know? Hello and welcome to No Name NYC Podcast. My name is Eric Vetter and I am the host for this ride. Thank you for joining us on this. And we don't care if you're tall enough to get on this the voice you heard up front is the one and only Bob Greenberg. Bob Greenberg is a longtime friend of No Names. He's a wonderful comic and actor. You know, it's funny. Bob's a really funny guy, and I think of him as, as a throwback to the Borscht Belt comics of old. You know, he did a lot of material that's rooted in old comedy folks, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy. And he knows his stuff. He's also done a lot of interesting acting things. And, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you you do these conversations and, you know, it's a combination of of a conversation for a podcast and catching up with old friends, especially with pandemics, some of whom uh, I've not seen in a while. What happens sometimes is you set out with things you want to talk about and then you start talking and you totally forget about it. And now... It is more challenging for me now that I'm blind. I, I, you know, it's pointless to write out notes. So we just go where the wind takes us, and that's a fun way to do stuff. But every now and then, it, it bites me in the ass. In the case of here, I, there was something I really wanted to talk with him about, and we we did not get to. It, and I do want to mention it to him. He's not just a wonderful comic and an actor, but uh, his acting exploits uh, include best actor in the New York. Theater Festival in 2022 for his solo show, Jimmy Breslin, How to Read the Newspaper Before It Goes Extinct. And just the idea of him doing Jimmy Breslin, unless I'm mistaken, Jimmy Breslin never made an old black and white comedy film. So Bob Greenberg doing Jimmy Breslin, I would have loved to have seen that. I'm sure he knocked it out of the park. His wife directed the play. Uh, it was directed by Teresa Delaval. And we didn't talk about that. So now at least y'all know. And I apologize in advance for what is probably <laughs> hopefully an entertaining conversation. But we definitely uh, kept getting uh, sidetracked. But it was a good conversation. It was good fun. We hope you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, we had a little conversation with Aaron Sims. Now, you may not know who Aaron Sims is, but folks in the arts uptown all know who Aaron Sims is. Aaron Sims is the founder and the grand poobah 
of Inwood Artworks, which is responsible for a billion things, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Alfresco, uh, as well as a long-running series of interviews with artists from Uptown, from Inwood in the Heights. We're coming close to the end of our first year of doing the podcast, and actually it was him inviting me to be a guest on the Inwood Artworks On Air podcast that inspired me to do this thing, and it's also where I met the gentleman who is our producer, Gary Understudy Hardcastle. So, uh, oh, a great debt of thanks to Aaron Sims, and uh, we thought we'd just show a little little light on what he's doing and what he's been able to accomplish uptown, and, and uh, it is no easy task to get things done in the arts uptown. If it's gotten any easier, it's gotten easier largely due to folks like Aaron Sims. So here we go. Here's Aaron Sims. What would you want them to know about what's going on with you guys? Sure. Well, first, I'll thank them for coming to the Inwood Film Festival, May 25th through 28th, which already happened. Uh, but uh, we have a concert on June 4th at uh, the Good Shepherd Auditorium called Mostly French, featuring arrangements by local Inwood arranger Gilbert Dejane. And um, we are excited. Gil is a great collaborator of ours. And so we're going to bring in some wonderful local musicians and musicians from outside the neighborhood to play here who are members of the American Symphony Orchestra and Carnegie Hall and Philharmonic and Broadway Pitts veterans. Um, and so, we're, you know, again, we're doing posers like um, Rachmaninoff and Foyer and, uh, and John Philip Sousa and things like that. So it's going to be very nice. Uh, and it, that's the fourth here at two o'clock at Good Shepherd. And then starting on the fifth, uh, Monday is Filmwork Cell Fresco, our sixth season of free outdoor. Man, I didn't realize it was that long. Tell me about it. Me neither. Um, free outdoor bilingual cinema down where, uh, we've moved around a little bit. We're at the, we were at the, um, the Gaelic field for a while, but we, the, at pre-pandemic times and post-pandemic times, this is where our third season down at the Hudson on 348 Dykeman Street, which is technically Dykeman Marina in Inwood Hill Park. Um, some parkland there. They lease it out. And um, we'll be there every Monday, 13 in a row, June through August. And what the, I'm promising our community this year that I'm excited about uh, is bringing back live performance before all of the shows. We did that um, out in the park pre-pandemic, and it's taken us three years to be able to afford to do that again. And so we're thrilled um, to have uh, a live tap dancing team of, <laughs> of wonderful kids performing um, before our first film, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, starring oh, Frank Sinatra and Esther Williams and Gene Kelly. Uh, so uh, I wish my mom were around. I'd like to bring her to that. Yeah. I, well, I think, again, just look at that film. There's something for everyone in the community. You have the dancing community. You have a little bit of the Irish community in there. You also have the musical theater people and... Uh, course the baseball people um so um and those new yorkers who just love frank sinatra so i think you got or and honestly people who love esther williams i mean she's wonderful i mean a wonderful actress uh so um i think you know we, we touch a lot of bases on that one literally but uh so uh that's what's happening through the end of august and we as anything else it's free um and we are here and we I, i'm always open to hearing people's suggestions. Um, what do you want to see from us next? How can we improve what we're doing now? You know, that's how, you know, we'll be around 
and doing these things as long as people want them to, or I'm able to do it. But I know they'll have an expiration date. Like I'm not naive in the sense of like, this too shall come to an end at some point. Don't know when. Um, you know, the pandemic ended a lot of things for a lot of people. And, and honestly, some people are ending things now, um, which is very interesting because the in the PPP money and the SVOG money, and mm. which we were too small to receive any of it, which I find incredibly ironic, the fact that we didn't get any money for anybody, and yet we're still around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I will say this, we, we do write grants, and we are very well supported in the sense of that with the uh, kind of like the little gold star on our foreheads from Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts, and I'm proud to announce we received our first NEA grant the National Endowment on the Arts. So how cool is that, that, you know, from the national, state, and city level, people like what we're doing in Inwood, Washington Heights, Northwest Bronx. I think that's pretty cool, you know. Very cool, I, And I yeah. think, you know, and, you know, and we're small but mighty. You know, we don't have a lot of overhead purposefully. And I think that's why, I know, hopefully, knock on wood, we're still around for a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I hope you're around for a lot longer, uh, actually. Uh, as someone who has often been approached by people uh, about doing stuff uptown and kind of resisted just because I did not know how to muster up the support that was needed for it. Uh, You have my uh, unending admiration for everything that you've done and continue to do. If people want to know more about Inwood Artworks or to support, to donate, or become involved, where can they seek you out and 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 get in hold, get a hold of you and find out what's going on? Well, uh, if you're a digital age person, you can go to www.inwoodartworks.nyc. Um, that's the easiest thing as far as like finding out about our programs and donating and things like that. And and as far as contacting me, my emails Aaron at inwoodartworks.nyc. Drop me a line. Let's have a talk. Have a coffee. On you, of course. Um, of but, course. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. That's part but, of the uh, funding. That's part of the funding. Yes, exactly. You want him to be awake when you speak to him and, and, and give him your that's proposal. That's how it is. When you... Get him some coffee and a pastry if you're really nice. <laughs> they don't call it not profit for nothing. You know what I mean? It's just, saying, it's just like, there ain't no money. There's, there's no profit like not for profit, right? So uh, so, so, you ha- so you have that cup of coffee and then we see Aaron on the subway a few hours later with the empty coffee cup trying to drum up funds for the next project. <laughs> exactly right. You know, multi-purposing, well, multitasking. And honestly, no donation is too small or too large. And that's the thing too. It's like, I got people donating uh, $2.50 a month to us. That's amazing. You know why? Because they care and they get it. Yeah. And that's and these are people who are working artists. And that's like, I, that's as, as meaningful as anybody else who can give anything else. You know that that that's that, that's like ideas like you know like the, the little signs that check the box saying you're still doing a good thing. You're you're not you haven't your mission hasn't drifted so far off crazily that people are wondering what the hell is going on anymore. <laughs> so, but well, and also I have to return the compliment to you for all the stuff you've done with No Name and your personal curation and performances throughout the years you know you're a legend in your own mind and your own time so uh appreciate everything you do thank thankfully my my mind is small enough to encompass it and i have no time so (laughs) it all works out sir it it was lovely having coffee with you this morning uh well water but uh, (laughs) it's all we can afford we're not for profit (laughs) (laughs) and don't worry i will return the unused portion of the cup of water um my friend, thank you for your time and keep doing your good work. It, may, it matters. My appreciation to you and, and Gary as well. 
Um, and, uh, you know, let's keep finding ways to collaborate. Indeed. Man, it was nice catching up with that guy for a few minutes. He's doing amazing work, uh, seriously, especially if you're uptown. Support Inwood Artworks however you can. Go to their events, go online, make donations, et cetera, and so forth. And if you love free outdoor movies, who did not love free outdoor movies? They have the now annual Filmworks Alfresco series of films, uh, which are shown at the Hudson, wonderful bar restaurant over by the water uptown. And that starts on Mondays, starting on June 5th. And this year is an eclectic mix of films, always uh, always with some local live performance of some sort prior to the film. And the series starts up again on June 5th with Take Me Out to the Ball Game. All right, so we're going to get to the conversation with Bob Greenberg in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor, Get Away to Green Bay. Away to Green Bay. Yes, that's right. The historic Astor House bed and breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. Where your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Steber, will greet you and make you feel at home in any of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have their own bath, and some of which even have a jacuzzi. Now, bed and breakfast. This is the bed and breakfast. You ever go to a bed and breakfast and think... I'd rather not have the breakfast. Or maybe you wake up and there was almost no breakfast and it's all gone by the time you got there. Or you do get there and there's like a couple of strips of bacon, maybe one or two turkey sausages, a box of half-eaten cereal, and some questionable fruit. That will never happen to you at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, where nothing is more majestic than the fresh, homemade, yummy, scrumptious. Their breakfasts are amazing and are worth the trip alone. And after breakfast, if you want to know what's going on in Green Bay, what's fun to do, what restaurants do you need to check out, well, ask Tom and Linda. They know everything. They're totally connected there, and they will see to it that you have a blast every second you are up there. So, what do you want to do? You want to make some reservations? You got some questions? Check them out online. Go to www.astorhouse.com. That is Astorhouse, A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Escape to Green Bay today. Man, how, how have you been all this time? I'm doing. Are we, are we are we recording? I'm not sure when the show starts. We are rolling. I wasn't <laughs> we, sure, so I will. All right, I understand this concept because ah, it's too late, man. No, let me it. tell you, uh, as as a as an actor who's been around a long time, yeah. um, nowadays, especially with these young directors and young crews, mm. there's no more roll sound, sound rolling, roll camera, camera rolling, and action now everything is rolling start start whenever you want the director say <laughs> right I, you, I can't you do it i just can't do it i said you got to give me <laughs> i don't know at least an action because i'm so used to that it was just like it was a way of uh probably 
getting centered too. I can't explain it. It's just sort of a one, two, three. Well, let me go. ask you this. Aside from that, right? You know, you you've been in the game for a long time. You know, do do you do you have any preferences about uh, now working digital after years of working in other formats? Well, my God, it is so easy now. Um, like if you fuck up, you know, you haven't wasted film. Right, you know, you just should, roll. Hey, let's just do it again. You I know? even say if you can roll digital on rehearsals, if you get a good one, you know, that's your take, you know. Uh, but with film, yeah, it was more expensive, and you had to pick the takes that you were going to print um, or be very – the low-budget movies I was doing, you know, you had to be very selective, you know, and unless something went wrong, you didn't take it again. Well, let me now they you- can just roll and roll, and it doesn't matter. You know, cause... well, let me ask you this. Do you could I, I know in some ways the the, the way things are now mm-hmm. might actually play to some of your strengths because you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of your strengths is improvisational stuff. Correct. And I mean, do you do you find it more freeing nowadays because you, you may have more time and, and license to do that? Or do you find uh, folks are are getting more sloppy because they know they don't have to nail it the first time? Well, that's an interesting question. I think with low-budget films, they're a little looser in the sense that although they have a time you know, situation where they may have to get out of location or a set at a certain time or there, there are certain restrictions when you have a low budget, uh, they can let it roll and you could do a little rift on what you did. Mm-hmm. I think still with commercial television like The Marvelous Mrs. Uh, Mazel, 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 uh, or those kind of shows, or even I did Law & Order years ago, they are so... Well, you're um, in New York, everybody in New York at some point. Yeah, I mean, I was one of the early people to find the body, you know, so... <laughs> Um, so you really know where the bodies are buried. And l- listen to how it's so different, or it was so different. So this is, I did Law & Order. I think it may have been the second season, 93. When did it start? I think it started in 92. I had Jerry Orr back, and I had Chris mm-hmm. Knopf. So it's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would send you, I'm trying to remember the order of pages. There were pink pages and yellow pages and blue pages. They would Somebody would deliver the script to you. They would keep revising the script, and you, and you know somebody would knock at your door with a full script, mm-hmm. and I was in what's called the teaser, you know, which is the the first thing when you hear the boom 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 whatever the thing is, <laughs> right right, and then you see a couple of funny people having an, a funny exchange, and oh, a dead body, and then the show starts proper, you know, you know yeah. how it goes. So uh, they would like sort of tinker with what or cutting the what or all right or cutting the you know what i mean it was that that timed out yeah so there was no time at least in the television i've done to screw around screw around with that it was mm-hmm. all timed out so they they had cut it already it had already been processed we were just acting it out you know what i mean it was all planned there was no lo- looseness you know to do shtick or anything like that <laughs> you know all right well you know hey Look, I, I know you are a a comedy geek and film mm. geek and showbiz geek of a certain stripe. Mm. Uh, you, you always been that way? Yeah, I guess um, when I was uh, when I was a kid, I got into Laurel and Hardy, I guess, were the first ones. Uh, and forgive me a second. You, you are a native New Yorker, correct? Yes. Uh, uh, Brooklyn? Yes. I, uh, I was uh, born in um, 
New York hospital. I'm not sure exactly where that was, but we lived in Brooklyn. We lived in uh, East New York, initially on Herzl Street. Then we moved to Strauss Street, mm-hmm. and that was Brownsville. And uh, from there, we moved to Kings Highway. So that's where I was pretty much. But when I drifted into whatever high school, I went to New York. I uh, interviewed for the uh, High School of Art and Design. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I used to two fair zone. I yeah, used to take yeah, the bus sure. to the trade. And uh, 90 minutes one way, 90 minutes the other way. I don't know how. I never slept, I guess. Yeah, you know, I <laughs> went to school, worked on my artwork Well, no sleep long. to Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. I wake up six in the morning. I'd put on Spike Jones music and do push-ups <laughs> and sit-ups I, I, in I, the Fiona's face. <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you this. I, 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 about a month ago, for the first time in my life, I joined the gym. I'm working out, and 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 I'm you know doing the the rec with it. You know, I've got the headphones and you know and listening to music or whatever random stuff coming up on on my phone. And Spike Jones comes on, and I'm like you know, in a way, this is perfect workout music. Yeah, I uh, certainly got the tempo for it, and right. I I bring that up not because I think anyone would be interested who's listening. But you're one of the few people I know who would appreciate <laughs> yes. how awesome a moment that was. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it's great and, music to exercise, too. Isn't what I'm saying. You know, yeah. the tempo, it's upbeat or whatever. Bum, and, bum. And, and, and for me personally, it was amusing to have that sandwich in between, like, you know, Al Green and Shaka Khan. Yes. Uh, I was like, what the fuck did that come from? So, all right. So, so you're going to school and listening to Spike Jones mm-hmm, while doing mm-hmm, sit-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, when did... When did the performing bug first first hit you um well i know i did impressions in the schoolyard uh, i did an alfred hitchcock impression i did i think i did laurel Which, and hardy well, oh, you know i, I still I, do the same act as i did when i was eight <laughs> years old i did curly i'm sure um so i did all that well, well the alfred hitchcock paid off in the long run you you, you yeah. actually uh, uh won a contest with that if you and right, appeared on I, broadway right yes i i look absolutely nothing like hitchcock except i'm heavy set i have hair and all that stuff but i have a way of puffing up my face mm. like a blowfish <laughs> that uh i would say it's more of a cartoon yeah. uh, hitchcock but it, it, it elicited laughter and of course i did the impression and the audience loved it you know so i won best uh, Alfred Hitchcock lookalike. <laughs> when I was in college and first doing, uh, starting to play with stand-up, I went to a, a weekly open mic up in the Columbia University area. Right, wasn't it? It was the uh, West e- End Gate Cafe. Right, I performed there, Remember? and we were all doing improv, and it was funny. I started doing, I don't know how it happened, but I would just come out in between our sets and do a little stand-up, like do a joke or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I developed doing stand-up. They said, Bob, go out there and, t- you know. And people were starting to take my material, the other comedians that were there. So yeah, came out and said, hey, Bob, Bob, <laughs> that guy just did your joke from last week, you know, and all this stuff, you know. That that was a fascinating, Mike. It wasn't the 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 most fun for someone brand new to that world as I was. Um, yeah, I, do, I, I just remember that Solis, uh, or Solis, he emceed it, and then he had this house improv group. And I don't know how I got part of the house improv group, but I was, mm-hmm. and Leguizamo was part of it. And then Leguizamo and Carol McDermott, which was his... Yeah, and then His girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, because they, they, I, I went first, off and did an act together. I would say I first saw them at the open mic uh, performing as John and Carolyn. Right, right. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I knew John well in those days. 
It was a crazy day, so we probably met each other years before we met each other. The first time I met you that I can recall, and I don't know who booked this, but you, me, and Emmy Gay. And Emmy a poet. I, I don't remember. We worked some gig in Brooklyn. Yeah, it, 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 it was, it was, an was old a senior's residence, yes. And Emmy Gay first... actually booked that. Oh, she booked it. Okay. She booked it. So I knew her from the stand-up and improv world. And, yeah. And and I it... didn't know you. Then you told me about your show, which was in that uh, peed in elevator on 8th <laughs> Avenue. and Everybody 30. always remembers the urine. Well, that was on 8th Avenue? And yeah, like 46th Street, between 46th and 47th. And the area was not the greatest in those days. It's a little no. better now. 8th Avenue itself wasn't terrible, but that building was just kind of shady was, from the, from it, the jump. Yeah, the, I, I, I wanted to go back to the idea of when you first... Oh, because performing. You... Because you've done a lot of different things in, yeah. in your career, and I'm wondering what what your first impulses were. Like, a, 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 did did you have the bug as a kid? I I guess I did. I mean, I was a cartoonist. I used to draw a lot. Oh wow! And I, I can I, relate. And I watched, you know, and I watched the Three Stooges every day. And mm. I wonder if I had Asperger's because I had to watch, you know, Popeye at three and the Three Stooges at three thirty and whatever. There was like a schedule, you know. I yeah. Couldn't do it. I yeah. couldn't deviate from that. And you freak out when they change the schedule every six months or so. Yeah, I had to. Fo I had to follow that schedule. And of course, I had seen these things a hundred times by the age of right. five or six, you know. But um, but yeah, I was into. I'm not quite sure. Definitely time for curly. Definitely time. <laughs> oh no, it's a shemp. But anyway, I love shemp now. You know, I, I you know you've matured as a Three Stooges fan when you were when you prefer shemp to curly. But it's something you have to go through. It's like a bar mitzvah. You know what I mean? You, you know, curly's for a certain age, and then you go, ah, oh, shemp. You know, you don't see shemp early on, but then eventually you go, ah, oh, I, I believe shemp. I, yes. I don't mean to brag, but I believe we're covering some some pretty rare territory here in the, in this podcast. Uh, funniest thing that Joe Bessa ever did, and I guess he he did it other other places as well. But with the Stooges, like Mo would bark something to him or hit him. Joe Bessa would then go like basically downstage or closer to us, you know, and, and mm -hmm. right into the camera. He would mouth. You wouldn't hear it. He would mouth, "I hate him," but you could read his lips. <laughs> I hate him, and it was the. I, I always thought that was the funniest thing. And I wonder if he did. He probably did that on stage. I could see him going <laughs> downstage, you know, doing the thing with the mouth. You know, so mm -hmm. well done. Mm -hmm. But um, where were we? We were talking. So, uh, about... <laughs> we, we were right here. Okay. Um, so my, you're my... more more of an artist. Who loves the Stooges and 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 all right? Of this. And I guess and I did impressions for just the kids in the mm -hmm. you know whatever the schoolyard. And then time passes, and in high school I did some drama shows. Oh, well, I was doing movies because I became that's probably it. I got into the film, you know, at art and design. Eventually, you have to choose a major, and I got into film, mm -hmm. and I'd start to act in other people's films. And then I was doing variety shows. We had variety shows at art and design. Mm -hmm. And I was doing more comedy and silent comedy kind of stuff. A lot of the films, student films are silent, you know. Right, right, so, especially, so I, you know, in those times. Right, yeah. Super 8 and all that stuff. So uh, I got into that. And then when I left, uh, well, I went from art and design to SVA. I was. I didn't know you were an SVA guy. School of Visual Arts, yes. Everybody got into SVA except for me. Well, uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, but uh, uh, I had a scholarship at SVA, as a matter of fact. 
Uh, I, I applied for that, and they basically said, please don't come around here anymore. It's more or less how that went. I was lucky because I did a Super 8 sound film called Make It a Picnic, which was a very Laurel and Hardy-inspired mm. film. And uh, the guy, Chuck Hirsch, who was related to um, some people you would know, but the names are not, but but, but a lot of well-known people in, in the film business, but he was the... I guess the head honcho who decided things at SBA for film people. Mm. Hirsch, his brother, was a famous editor or director, and I can't remember his name. But anyway, um, he he loved uh, this film that I made, this you know twelve minute mm. film, and uh, and I also wrote about my influences and it was Laurel and Hardy, and and so he just dug me. So I got that damn scholarship, and I was supposed to be a director and all that stuff, but then I got hit by a car on oh, Kings geez. Highway. Crossing to get to 5417 Kings Highway. Um, uh, don't cross uh, in the middle of the street. And I got hit by a car, and I got a broken leg, and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So as I'm, I could have taken a whole year off, and it would have been fine to convalesce. But no, I wanted to go back to school. And my father was great. He would drive me from Brooklyn to school and hang out and pick me up, whatever. And I was on crutches. You know the deal. So um, once in school, though, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't hang lights. You know, now, you know, you don't need... Well, you know, we got a guy here holding a microphone. But normally, you know, I mean, it, it, cameras now, the phones are the cameras, right? So, but then you needed to hang lights, and you had to do all this physical. It was very heavy. Yeah, the cameras yeah, yeah. were heavy and everything. So I wound up sitting a lot. <laughs> and as a result, I was a talking head in people's films and other students' films. Got it. Got and it. that, I think, inspired me, uh, although I had done some of that in high school, to maybe pursue acting, but still I wasn't really, you know, thinking along the lines. Although I did take a, a drama class, a, a fellow by the name of Bob Brady, who was a contemporary of Marlon Brando. He knew Brando when he lived mm -hmm. with Wally Cox. He was that, you know, kind of guy from that period. Uh, and Brady did do some films and things, but he never made, Brady never became a Brando, you know what right, I mean? Right, but he right. was in that, he was in the class, you know, he was in the class. So, um, I remember studying with him a little bit, but still, I didn't have the acting bug, so I leave college and I'm doing. Well, I'm and doing, are, are, are you still like, uh, you know, because you went to art and design, you were thinking of, of being of, a cartoonist. Well, the cartoonist thing fell out of me, and, and the reason was, uh, I had taken a the, at art and design. I forget if it was the ninth year or the tenth year. But you, you actually got into uh, SVA for for the film, right? For film, because right. you had a rotation in art and design, and uh, I just didn't feel I was very good at drafting. I think mm -hmm. I got a yes, I got a hundred in drafting. Don't ask me why. And, oh God, the drafting homework. I'd be up to three in the morning listening to Captain and Tennille, you know, on <laughs> FM stations, you know. Uh, and then I had to get up at, at six to, to exercise to Spike Jones and get the heck out to school, right? Um, <laughs> You've got those the were the days. Covered. Those were the days. But I wasn't interested in doing any kind of drafting work. I wasn't, you know. And then I also got 100 in watercolor. And that was kind of weird. What did I do in watercolor? I just painted a lot of clouds like a, like red skelton used to paint clouds a lot of people used to get into i don't know why but 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 i still was not into watercolor i just happened to be good but um we didn't have a, a rotation on um cartooning but we had life drawing i felt my life drawing wasn't as good as other people there were mm -hmm. other things i did that i did that i just didn't think i was as good clay i was not very good 
Mm -hmm. So somehow we did film and that seemed to to work. And then when I had to choose my major, uh, okay. you know, as my friend Vinny Civitello, who was not the nicest guy in the world, would say, uh, Greenberg, you you're taking film, well, that's good because as an artist, you suck. You know, he was one of the, you know, Civitello was a guy, boy, he would get into so much trouble. He had a very strange sense of humor. And of course, these were different times. He goes, hey, Greenberg, you know what? You're a Jew. He would just say that, you know. And uh, today, boy, he would he would be eradicated. <laughs> but he thought it was well, funny. Are you, and of course, still I was in an touch idiot. With him, he may have been. He may have been. I haven't seen him yet. But so but, so. But anyway, I wound up going into making movies, and then from college, I, I there was a there was a business in those days mm -hmm. uh, of videotaping uh, weddings, bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Uh, Besides private parties, corporate events. And so I was doing that. I was videotaping and, and that kind of thing. And a lot of young students did that or they did the news, you know, whatever, with the sure. heavy cameras and stuff. And um, I wound up, I don't know how it happened, via, via doing bar mitzvahs, I met somebody. He worked at a place called Video Dub. Video Dub was, they dub video, you know, commercials yeah. and stuff. And I got into the shipping and the receiving, and then I became a master tape librarian. Ooh, and uh, I was good at losing people's masters. It was very good. Anyway, <laughs> at that time, I had a friend, Russ Riley, who was taking classes at the First Amendment, which was on mm, oh, yeah, Bond yeah, Street. Legendary. Improv group. And uh, he invited me to go to a show or something. And they had this class, and I started doing the class. And then Jane Brucker, who ran the class, oh, yeah, yeah. invited me to do improv at Folk City. They used to have a, a, a Sunday night improv jam, which yeah. was still going on for a while. I don't know if it's still happening, but it was going on. It was it was going on as of just pre-pandemic, let's put it mm -hmm. that way. So um, I started getting the acting bug from doing the improv. And then from there, I took a lot of improv classes with Leguizamo doing improv, drifted into stand-up just a little bit. And then I booked my first commercial, which was the Three Stooges VCR game commercial. Oh, as Curly, oh, wow. no surprise, right? Right. And then I started doing some commercial. I did, did a lot of because the Stooges, even though they were dead at this point, they kind of had a resurgence in the late eighties. Yeah, well, it, 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 uh, the Curly Shuffle did, did yes, that for a lot of that people. That whole it, thing, yes. It they, came back on AMC. So and I was all one that. of the new Three Stooges, you yeah, know, whatever. And I did a lot of uh, infomercials as Curly and commercials and blah, blah, blah. And then <laughs> what kind of infomercials were you doing Oh, it was selling, selling the Three Stooges Library. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't for, you know, incontinence. No, I wasn't doing <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Erectile dysfunction? Say that. You know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't doing that, no. But anyway, I, I, no, it was for the Three Stooges Video Library. Okay. Oh, or, yeah. or I did the Three Stooges Marathon on WRTV, or I did Three Stooges VCR but Game. Now, of course, you know, I'm saying I'm dating myself VCR, but, you know, video games. You oh, my God. It's like, well... But no, they're young people. My my daughter would be a video. What you know, you know. So, <laughs> but let me ask you this: because now that that's a, that's a a decent progression from I'm going to be an artist to I'm going to be a filmmaker mm -hmm. to Hey, I'm out here. Now you said when you first started, uh, you said the stand up started as kind of an offshoot of when you were studying yes. improv, right? Yes. Yes. Now I mean, did you take to it right away, or was it just like, hey, here's something I can do? Well, the, the the great thing or or the fortunate thing about me doing stand-up was that I had already an improv background. Now, I didn't have a 
really pro acting background, mm-hmm. but I did have an improv background. So I can recall um, doing stand-up for the first time. I mean, where I was performing in a stand-up comedy show as opposed to doing it in the middle of a improv show. Oh, whatever, right, right, right. Was it a place called Something Different in Montclair, New Jersey? And I'm remembering this oh, name. Lordy. Mickey Loesch was the MC, And this place was a bakery that had tables people would eat. And uh, it, was, it, it, it packed hundreds of people, and they were all college students. Uh, uh. And Mickey did this act where he would do the straight line, and the kids, they were all from colleges. And I guess they couldn't go to bars. You know, they were that, I guess it was before they were 21 or something like uh, that. Uh. So it was a place to, to get together, you know, and uh, whatever. And uh, he would do the straight line, Mickey, and the audience would chant back with him the punchline because they were so familiar. Oh, wow, wow! Which was a, a, which was a jarring thing to see, but I did my first stand up there, and like two hundred people, and I remember starting and I'm doing some shtick, probably about being Jewish or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was not a Jewish crowd for sure. Uh-huh. And some guy, some jock in the center of the whole house said something like, uh, uh, you're a dick. You know, they all laugh. You know, this is like a big mm-hmm. laugh. And so I said something. I think I called him either uh, a pussy or the C word. I can't remember. Well, you're a whatever, you know. Uh-huh. I can't remember exactly which one. So I said, let's go let's go out, out back to the alley and, you know, fuck or whatever. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was not me. It was not even Bob Greenberg kind of material. I'm like, wait a all minute. All of a sudden, is- I mean, I... I, I I've never said since that time, my first time, I never said cunt or fuck before, you know, again in my entire life. But but that <laughs> crowd, ate, they thought that was hilarious. And it quieted the guy down. And then I was able to do my curly impressions or whatever I was doing. You know? <laughs> Wait, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I, 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 this is such a beautiful showbiz story. Yes. You, you, your, your first foray away. Into, <laughs> into stand-up. Yeah. From the guy who was gonna be a cartoonist who becomes uh, a TV in in improv, and it's like, all right, let's try this stand up thing. Let's go to Montclair, New Jersey. Wow, yeah. Uh, in front of racist college students, well, say the c word as a transition into doing my curly impression. Yes, yes. That that that's that's a beautiful thing, dude. That. <laughs> but it was definitely yeah. a place. I actually, in retrospect, or even at the time, if you're starting to do stand up. You don't want to go to the comedy cellar. You don't want to go to the comic strip. You want to go somewhere well, where, you, where you it means think nothing. You do, but <laughs> no, where where it means nothing. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You so where you could, you know, George Burns used to say that they, they were saying, "Why don't you have the the quality of entertainers and comedians like you used and to?" No one playing and he, Altona. And he said, "There's no place to fail." Uh, you know, every you know, I I failed for twenty years before I found my thing. Mm-hmm. You know you. You know, performers need to go someplace where they can fail, yeah. learn their craft, and then, you know, when the door, someone knocks at the door, they're ready. Now they just go out and they're at the top top room or whatever, the t- club, and they're they're working on new material, you know, mm-hmm. you know. So so that did, was a place did, to fail. So for you I didn't wh- fail. Was it was it was it love at first profanity? Uh, uh I like getting the laughs, but that wasn't my act, you know. Right. Well, no, I know that. But I learned I, I learned things, you know, when you what when I'm I saying was, is were you eager to dive back in after that first yes, experience? Yes, and, and I did it fairly regularly 
for a year or so, or maybe two years or so. And then I stopped for a while. And then Di Kornberg, do you remember Di Kornberg? I don't, I don't know think you know. I do. He started doing stand-up. He was an improv guy, and he brought me back. And so I kept, I was sort of the, the wandering Jew of, uh, of stand-up. You know, I would like do it for a year or two, disappear for a year or two, you know, that kind of thing. And um, I, I, I liked it, but the thing was, I was not comfortable. Like I used to play the comedy cellar late at night. Me and Emmy Gay used to get mm -hmm. those late night spots. But I wasn't, um, maybe because I was shy or insecure, the, the guys who have kind of made it, they, they they kind of formed a little bond. They would sit in a booth together, like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Tell and people like that. And yeah, old court. I became friends with Jeff. I mean, Jeffrey Ross remembers me. A lot of these guys remember me, but I was not sitting uh, with them. And they and like it formed like Ray Romano was around. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, and I didn't, I mic. didn't, I, and he was nice to me. He liked my Luke Costello or whatever it was. Uh -huh. And uh, years later, when I worked on that show, Vinyl, he was on that show too, and we had lunch together, and we had a wonderful, mm -hmm. and we were in the same van together, going back to the city, yeah, yeah, you know. Right. So we had a nice time that one afternoon, and he knew me, but he probably did not exactly remember where he knew me, but it was the cellar. Right. But but that group that Ray hung with, they they're all still working with him, you know, John Manfrotti. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All those people. Mike what, Royce. Mike Royce was one of the guys. Now I knew Mike Royce too, but I didn't I didn't sit at that table, and I could have sat at the table. Um, so to you, all you young performers, go sit at the table. I just felt a little <laughs> not as seasoned. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think the reason I got into why well, I was accepted into doing these late night spots at the comedy so at an early time in my stand-up career was I did these impressions well mm -hmm. and as a result that that you know I could get lost in my Curly or my Jackie Gleason or my Laurel and Hardy or whatever I was doing Lou Costello uh, you know that that would propel me but then you know when you have to have more material it takes it takes a while to get an act you know sure. so so while you're starting to explore the, mm -hmm. the stand-up your little back and forth uh, how are you paying the bills at this point? You, well, I, as, as I recall, or are you paying the bills? As, yeah, no, I it's frequently I, the case of young stand. Well, I, I would occasionally do things that I that would never work out. Like I was a, a temp, and I was the worst temp with the phones. <laughs> uh, I, I I typed very well. You know, they used to have typing classes in in school, and and when I was young, I I could type pretty good. But as I got older, I guess I was out of out of. Uh, circulation so long i was not a good typist as an adult you know mm -hmm. um i also did uh I, I sold the new york times on the telemarketing oh and i was the worst telemarketer <laughs> i would call somebody that answered you don't want to buy the times do you no i don't have a hang up <laughs> no, no, no. i was the that, worst i i was... I, I, I think you I, I think you missed uh i think you missed the the trick there is that you do that at, at an infomercial with Curly. Yes, right. You don't want to buy the New York Times. No, but it was just so funny. Uh, but those are minor things. That the main thing, well, I did. Vid I was working at Video Dub, which was like a regular gig. Mm -hmm. oh, so but, that was your, your, your study? But then I started and I le left there, or they got rid of me, however you want to look at it. I retired. Um, uh, it was mutual. Mutual. <laughs> sure, uh, that, mutual that, that, breakup. that's safe. Yeah. So uh, and I think I was fine. They fired you, you left. You're good. I got unemployment. That's the important thing. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So whatever that whatever that means to you. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. so I, I, oh, yeah, I used to go on unemployment a lot. That was good. And then I, I also was doing, and, and it paid very well in those days, murder mysteries. I worked with a couple of companies, and you made 
$250 a show, which was a lot of money oh, in yeah, those yeah. days. Oh, yeah, yeah, especially and at I that time. I would do two or three of those a, a month. Plus, mm-hmm. I was holding lights and shooting videos, and you made 50 or 75 And And, oh, I did PA work on commercials, and that paid 75 a day. Mm-hmm. So I was always working. Right. Uh, I can't explain how, but I was just always <laughs> working. So I paid. I, I did pay the bills with that. And then... Um, the commercials kind of were very helpful to keep a salary going. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And then I did, uh, you know, I was doing more TV. I did Robert Klein time and I did um, a Three Stooges. I had like my whole Three Stooges time, uh, you know, in the biz. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, occasionally I still do. I've done some events with Scurly, but uh, you, know, you get a certain point, you just can't get hit in the head anymore. It's just. <laughs> too much so uh i'm you know curly didn't curly passed away much you know well he i think he passed away when he was like 48 or something it's very sad you know yeah so i've passed that myself so uh maybe curly should sleep so (laughs) my curly should sleep you know my my curly should retire with the stooges yes but my curly should retire you know you reach a point well you know uh luke costello passed away at 53 and i'm still doing him a bit so you know Cut cut to Bob working on his new act of doing Curly Joe Dorita. Yes, yes, survive that. Uh, <laughs> well, Oliver Hardy was still working in his sixties, so that's a good thing. But but he passed away when he was sixty five. So when I hit sixty five, yeah, no, maybe yeah, I should yeah, retire. I got a couple. Work, of years. On yes. work on the George Burns. Yes, work on the George Burns. I, I want to kind of bridge the gap from these, you know, experimental and and trying mm-hmm. on different hats as it right. were. A period to the guy who was a fixture at the Friars Club and okay. doing films and TV and all of these things. Uh, how did you right. get from there to there? So so I, I think I could do this kind of briefly. I went from the improv world into doing theater. Not sure how, maybe backstage <laughs> or people I knew who was doing improv. And, and I wound up doing Children on Their Birthdays, which was a play. I wound up doing a sketch show, which I can't remember the title of. And, <laughs> and I wound up doing that. And of course... Doing the murder mysteries, I was working with actors and things like that. And then I started doing plays, regular plays, although I had no real background in drama, but I learned on the job. That as well wound up in doing. So you're auditioning and, and, and getting I'm, roles auditioning, in yeah. Plays. I had, I, after the curly thing, which I had been a Santa Claus at Macy's. <laughs> Legendary story, at, yeah. Right, and there were six Santas working at one time because they had different houses. You, the audience, the, the customers didn't know it. And somebody left a clipping for that curly audition on the floor. It was from backstage. Somebody had clipped it out, dropped it accidentally or on purpose, and I asked the other Santas, uh, says wanted curly for the Three Stooges VCR, and I asked, and nobody knew what it was. They were making fun of it. They're not gonna, and I went to that audition. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> and then after I got the job, especially I bought backstage, and I would go on things, and that's how I kind of drifted. You struck into, me as a, as a backstage kind of guy. There's yeah, certain, there's a certain breed of New York performer. And I would show that, up for those open calls and hang out, and yeah. I got the independent films. I did a film called Punch the Clock. I did a couple of things like that and then uh commercials i did a lot of commercials in the late 80s early 90s uh wendy's uh did i do a mcdonald's i probably did i know i did uh ballpark fun franks uh, <laughs> ballpark franks i did uh fun size this and fun size that all those mcdonald's funds arby's holiday uh holidays cafe glasses and things like that 
And from from that, I, I sort of graduated into independent uh, films and stuff. Now, as to the Friars Club, I got re, re, reacquainted with Jeffrey Ross, who mm. knew me then. Oh, we did a movie together. What was the movie? I, I think it was Heartbreak Hospital. I'm not certain, but a film. I worked with Patricia Clarkson, who's a wonderful actress. Mm. Um, but we were in this movie together. We went. I went to the screening. He was there. I was there. He remembered me from the cellar. And we we continued this friendship. And then my friend Dave Koenig, you know Dave Koenig. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he and I did a play together, The Odd Couple. Uh, and this is now. You, you and Dave. Uh, we, 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 weren't, we weren't Felix and Oscar. When he you was, play, I, I, he the, was Roy that... or Speed. I think he was Roy. Uh, and I was Murray the Cop. Oh, that must have been fun. We did it at two places, the Gateway Playhouse and then Candlewood Playhouse. So at that time, Dave had joined the Friars Club. Dave was trying to get me to, to join or whatever. And and I had a little experience with the Friars Club because I, I got into the Toyota Comedy Festival, the first one. Oh, and Alan yeah. King, Alan King ran the auditions at the Carnegie Deli. And I got a call back, which was at Stand Up New York, and I booked that. And I worked with a lot of good people like uh, John DeResta and a lot of good people on the on the on, you know, people that you would Corey Kahaney, a lot of people you would know their yeah, names yeah, on the I thing. So um, and I did I did a few shows for them and I could have I was a, I was sort of a um, honorary friar during the run of that first Toyota Comedy Festival. But once again, I, I, I was bitten by the shy bug, you know, and I was just I couldn't walk in i once i did walk in i never went past like the bar in the front i didn't get into the dining room or anything <laughs> someone said henny youngman was just there i was like oh i'm afraid to run into henny youngman you know it was funny you know because because showbiz is really a social business if you want to move from one from a to b c to d you've got to socialize it's it's a very important social business there's you the know? show there's the biz yes so you have to show up and you have to be social yeah and one thing and even Everything I've told you, not not there was no master plan. One thing led to the other. One person going back to Santa Claus, there was somebody who was in Katha Feffer's improv class, said that he just got a gig doing Santa Claus at Macy's. And maybe they're looking for people, maybe you should go. And and that led to another thing, to another thing. Everything leads to yeah. something else. So you're kind of just uh something going just, with the flow and, and the flow is, is taking me and just moving forward, you know. So at any point did you have specific things that you would hope to nail or are you just enjoying the ride and going with whatever comes up? I can say that I had no master plan. I I don't think I wanted to be a, thinking about being a star or being a top stand up or a top this or top that. I kind of just let things go um you know in retrospect i could say maybe i shouldn't have went off and did this at that time and maybe i shouldn't have went off and did that but i basically rarely turned anything down which mm. uh as, as someone once said bobby should be more selective and it's very hard to be selective because i honestly don't know what's what's good sometimes so what i've done i've done i did a show called the characters with uh, tim robinson and mm. everyone under 30 knows me from this show on Netflix. And I didn't quite understand what, what was going on. 
So, so, uh, so I can find fame and fortune by not understanding what's going on. That's fine. I don't care. You know what I mean? So I think to myself, it's best not to know too much. You know, well, I you're just... still still several steps ahead of the the late beloved Larry Bud Melman. I think you at least it's, it's have a sense of what you're doing. Know. You just don't. I, I just did a short film for somebody, and I, I, I she sent me an outline. She sent me a storyboard. I didn't understand what it was. She said, "You want to meet?" She kind of said. Said no, I'm just going to show up, and you tell me what to do. It was fine. They loved everything I did. I don't know if it would have mattered if I knew what I was supposed to be doing or I, what it yeah. meant. But but sometimes you know what? Sometimes it's best just to show up, you know, and then everything else takes care of itself. Well, you know, it, it's funny. I, we have a mutual friend in uh, comic Nancy Lombardo yes. who's, who's done our, our podcast mm-hmm. before, and it it's strikes me that you guys have you've had different career paths but you're you, you do share a certain showbiz purist uh, mm-hmm. aesthetic in in that you know you kind of say yes to pretty much everything unless there's a good reason not to and uh, Nancy told the story about like accepting gigs that she might not even be right for but mm-hmm. it's like you know hey, can you dance nobody can dance like me and she, that doesn't mean I can dance well but no one can dance like me right you know, um, and, well, we and, traveled in the same circle. She did the murder mysteries. I, I've done murder mysteries with her. Mm-hmm. She was an improv teacher at First Amendment. She was on, yeah, in, in First Amendment. We both did public access TV back in the day and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And uh, I did a cable show called Sons of Fun, which was when Manhattan Cable TV had 31 channels, 32 channels. There was a box you pressed the uh, box, right, right, right. Yeah, so I kind of drifted with the ebb and flow. And if I look back, I could say to myself, well, maybe I shouldn't have went to, I, I spent the summer at resorts doing W.C. Fields and some kind of facocta show on the boardwalk. <laughs> did I lose some work from that? Perhaps I did. Did I lose momentum? But, you know, you can't, you know, you just can't go back. I, I think today I'm a much better actor, comedian, human being than mm. I was then. And I think even the bad decisions helped me i learned what what didn't kill me uh i survived you know Mm -hmm. and and i think even perhaps not the best choices would i I, and the thing is if i was a star then i wouldn't have been ready i don't my head wasn't right do you know what i mean so i think subconsciously even if maybe you could say the shyness pulled me back or pulled me no that's that's where i was at the time i was even you could say, well, you know, Bob, you should have did this. You should have done that. You should have hung with this one because now this one is big. And, you know, no, I made the right decisions because I wasn't ready yet or I didn't exactly want that yet. Yeah. So, you know, I could I can offer this advice to anyone in the business and they feel they should have gone further. They should. There's no should have. There's no would have. There's no could have. You, you do what you got to do. And, you know, that's all that matters. And you, it's it's good to to do something. And you learn from that. And I, I honestly, you know, there was a time where I said, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done this, or maybe I should have done or maybe I should have said this. Why did I say, you know, you can't go there. Everything is right, everything right. is for a reason. And even the bad decisions season you and make you think about other things and you step back. So um, any kind of experience in show business, I think is good. Whether you play for two people or 200 people, it's all a good experience. And of course, sometimes you don't, you know, you're in some place and it's a, it's a, it's three in the morning, you're performing for a drunk or something. You think, why am I 
doing this, but you know, <laughs> ten years from from that point, you know, you're, you're more seasoned, and and so it it kind of helps you. Um, but it's hard, you know. You we're all kind of conditioned now to make things easy. You do that TikTok, you do that, and it happens for a lot of people. They make a TikTok and they're a star in 15 well, minutes. Also, it's a different kind of head nowadays. Well, as so. as the business is now, what would you like to do going forward that you haven't done yet? What I haven't done yet, that's a good question. Uh, it would be very nice to have a, because I've done, you know, I've, I've played the best friend in the movie Tango Shalom, and I've played the best friend in a very merry toy store. And I'm, I've done a lot of my two or three scenes, five scenes in the film. Uh, it would be great to be a, a lead in a feature. I have not done that yet. Mm. Um, my thing is I've done a lot of leads and shorts. So I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm always big in little pictures and little and big pictures basically, but it would be nice to be a lead in a, perhaps a major motion picture, let's mm. say, uh, although I'm very grateful for doing little parts and, big films as well and it might be fun to do a, a a sitcom you know like a regular sitcom um as opposed to you know doing something every few months and i'm very grateful for anything that i i, I, do. I think i think you you but it might be kind of fun to like you know every day wake up and do something although it's it's hard work you know i mean they have 16 mm -hmm. hour days but it might be fun to do a series and you know play one character and that'd be kind of fun you know, it's like doing a play, like doing a play for 10 weeks or 12 weeks. Right, yeah, yeah. right. And you, you you know in advance, I'm going to be doing this for X amount of time. Right, and right. Well, it, it's kind of fun. It'd be kind of fun just to not even think about it, not even think about what your next gig is. Just, you know, you know you're know, going to do 13 weeks. I mean, I did this show called Vinyl. and I, played, I remember that. And I, right, I, and I played Hannibal's agent. Uh, Harvey was my name. And I think I was kind of based on Harvey Weinstein, but it wasn't Harvey Weinstein, you know, but, the, but Harvey was the character. And that was before. Yeah. Yes, that was before the, the, the Michigas. Yes. So um, I had one episode and I worked two days and made good money and I'm still getting residuals because it's playing somewhere. Um, but it was supposed to be a recurring character, but the show didn't last. I forget if we had we had eight episodes, maybe. I can't remember. It was mm. one season and it didn't last. So I never came back. Although my suit is waiting for me, I think. <laughs> well, listen, there are two very specific things I, I want to ask hit, you about hit, briefly. Hit the thing, and I'll, I'll try to nail it. For for a number of years now, I've I, when you've done our show, I've introduced you as the only person who's ever done our show who has both been proposed to by Jim Carrey on live national TV mm -hmm. and been naked in a Jennifer Lopez film. Now, uh, you must be... Uh, really sick of me saying that all the time, but I, I, I think that did give you a unique position. I just want to ask you very briefly. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about those? Those yes. are just crazy moments. Okay. Uh, um, Jim Carrey. We'll they, start with Jim Carrey. Yeah. I submitted my picture and resume to Senate live casting for background and what's called under five under five is like five lines or less. Mm. And they, booked me uh matt McHugh was the casting director for various you know uh background or, or a lot of digital shorts you know yeah uh and that was great and then they had a bit on the show with jim carrey in 2011 i believe it was january 8th 2011 where he's talking about that the end of the world is it mm. 12 is going to be 2012 
So now that it's 2011, he's going to say and do whatever he wants because the world's ending soon. And so the shtick that they had me do was he says, uh, so I'm going to say and, and do whatever I want. He says this in the monologue. And he says, yeah. for instance, I'm looking at a pair of beautiful breasts. And they cut to me in a T-shirt. <laughs> and I say, thank you, Jim. Thank you. That was, that was supposed to be the shtick. Um. It, it altered from the dress rehearsal. So we do the live show. He picks on this girl. And I'm not sure if they were properly screened or whatever. Uh. Her name is Mindy because I've seen this many times. And, <laughs> and he proposes marriage to her, and she shows him her wedding ring. She, and he says, he oh, you're married? He says, yes. So she's not getting up out of her seat. Says, uh, oh, well, that's okay, Mindy. Uh, you don't need that. He tries to take off her wedding ring. And I'm sitting there going, you don't try to take a woman's wedding ring off. Whatever. And you see a bit of panic in his eyes. You know, He's like, <laughs> what is he going to do? Now, I don't know where this is going to go, because she appears to not want to play. Right. On live TV. Yeah. And I just waved to him. Now, I'm off camera, because I'm in uh -huh. my seat. But I waved to him. I don't know why I waved to him, but I just <laughs> waved to him. He goes, okay, Mindy, fine. He says, come on, dude. And he pulls me out of my uh, seat. He uh. says, what's your name, dude? He says, Bob, Bob. Okay, I see my Bob. He says, Bob, will you marry me? Or I can't remember how he phrased it. Uh, and I and I say, yes, Jim, or whatever I say. He says, Let's meet Bob, my new my my life partner. Uh, and uh, and that was a big laugh. And that was all improvised. And that I that was hilarious. I I was watching when I <laughs> it was all whatever I said back and forth to him was was all improvised. And I even whispered to him, "Want me to carry you off?" I figured he couldn't pick me up. He said, no, right. you know, we'll just hug, and we're saying this on live TV, you know. Uh, and uh, and then we know we'll just wave. Let's just wave, which gave me more you know screen time as a matter of fact. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he says to me right as they're fading out and everyone's applauding, he says. He says, man, you saved my ass. Thank you so much. I says, oh, oh no man. Problem. And and he's, you know, holding He's like patting me like this. And then all of a sudden his hand slides off my shoulder. They're grabbing him to get him ready for the next sketch. Right, right, right. And they're tearing away his clothes. Everything was breakaway to get him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the stage manager, who knew what happened, knew that this was unplanned, says, let's hear it for Bob Greenberg, you know, whatever. And I took a bow from the stage. Oh, nice. And the crew guys were, were giving me the high five. And, everyone, and I forget his name, Bobby, Bobby's last name. He said, you know, that's the only time that there was actual improv on SNL. Everything's always scripted. Uh, and there's, uh, here's the whole monologue ended on this. And, uh, and I ran into Mulaney later on. He thanked me. He saved her ass. So <laughs> it didn't, didn't get me a, a, a recurring role on SNL, but it was, it's, it's considered a high moment, you know, on that show. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very was... proud of that. And then as to Jennifer Lopez, I auditioned with Todd Taylor Casting, and the the original screenplay, and it got changed, was was all about Jennifer and all the uh, odd eccentric people that were staying at the Waldorf. They were weren't calling it the Waldorf, mm. and one guy was a, a guy who was always naked when the cleaning lady came into his room. Oh, right. And uh, I auditioned for that part. I did not get that part. <laughs> Uh, but there was this other part of a guy who's locked out of his room because he's lactose intolerant. So they, they thought of me for that. And I mm -hmm. got that part. And I had a scene. This was kind of sad for me because I had this scene with the bellboy that got cut where it's after she sees me and she says, oh, we got to send a bathrobe to he's lactose. She does the whole thing because she sees me on the security camera. 
it's an important scene early in the movie because it establishes the security cameras of what's going on because later on she gets into trouble doing things. Right. So they had to establish that security is always watching and taping. And you see me locked out of my room and I'm naked. I was actually naked for the scene because they had some kind of a Speedo, like a flesh-colored Speedo, but it was very noticeable. So they closed the set for the scene anyway. Mm -hmm. he says, would you mind? I said, no, I said, this can I hold a news? So they gave me a newspaper. Ray Fines, Ray Fines, the actor who's in the movie. His face was on the New York Post that I put on my genitalia during that, but I was covered up. <laughs> and they assigned a guy to carry around this big pink bathrobe. That when we were not shooting, that bathrobe went on. You know what I mean? They cover yeah, you yeah. up. It was like some sort of a sag thing, you know? Yeah. So, um, and it was just me and the cameraman and maybe the first AD shooting that scene. So then the follow-up scene was me and a bellboy, and I'm saying to him, was there milk in that tomato soup? And he says, no, milk, uh, cream, you know, cream. And I said, that's a dairy product, and I'm yelling at him. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, they didn't like my read, or there was something that didn't work, but they never, they, they didn't use that scene. There's a scene in, <laughs> in, the, in the finished film where she's talking about all the different guests and there's like a montage of the guy who's naked who's in the room. There's a montage or whatever. And so the whole concept of the episodic nature of the film was consolidated into this one, one little montage. montage. Yeah. So it became a completely different script. And I'm not sure if J-Lo and her people, when she came aboard, changed it or where, where it got changed. Because she also had an, another gal working with her. There were supposed to be these other characters and that all kind of got minimized for the for the main story of J-Lo and Ray Fiennes. Yeah, actually... Uh, and Stanley I, Tucci and uh, Natasha Richardson. It became more about the four main characters, yeah. But I, I'm still getting checks. I still get checks, residual checks for Made in Manhattan, tiny <laughs> ones. I get for... Uh, there was a show called Lights Out I did. I get checks for that. I get vinyl. So uh, I wish I did more. It's like I was getting more checks because the little tiny ones, you know, they do add up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep doing your work, and there's definitely sure. more to come, man. I, yeah. I just want to thank you so much for thank you spending Eric. some time. I, I, you know, I, I, I could sit for hours listening to your showbiz stories. Uh, we didn't even if, cover the Friars Club, but now I'm a member of the Lambs Club, and I am a lamb. I'm a little lamb, <laughs> yes. So I'm well, very you, happy you, about you, the You came in like a lion. True, and uh, I go out like a lamb. There you go. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I think that's a wrap then. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, so, thank you, Eric. Thanks, I, I always enjoy doing your your no name show, and God of uh, from the urine stained uh, elevator up to you, no name back in the day to uh, Otto's, to a bookshop in Washington Heights to Otto's Shrunken Head to uh, <laughs> Word Up. Here, yeah, it's uh, it's always a pleasure. You're you're a good man, Charlie Brown. I'm extending my hand. <laughs> oh, there you go. Eric, we're shaking hands you, now. Sir. We're on the radio. Hello. <laughs> Exactly. Right. That, would do, actually, that would actually that would be acrobats. It's actually a stunt shake, but uh <laughs> but I'm doing a headstand right now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you can't see it, but uh, the anyway. end oddly enough, as we predicted earlier, naked. Yes. Thanks a lot, Bob Greenberg. It would it was fun talking Thank to you. Thank you, Eric Better. Thank you. Now with our conversation with Bob Greenberg. Well, I think we covered a lot of territory. We may not have covered everything I intended to cover, but that's what happens when you're just catching up with, with folks and, and having a conversation. It doesn't always 
follow any set plan because there is no set plan. It's just two guys talking. Anyway, we want to thank you guys for hanging out with us. I want to let you know who makes this thing happen. First and foremost, our Grand Poobah, the one, the only, Gary Understudy Hardcastle. He is the producer and chief audio engineer. And uh, we'll see if we can add, add a few more fancy titles there. Um, <laughs> additional audio supplied by Miles Mix Appeal Blues Cruise. The music, the theme music is written and performed by King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. And uh, we're going to leave you today with uh, some music, as we like to do. We're going to leave you with a song from our good friend, James Tristan Redding. And this song, I love the title of this song. It is called, A Mouse Dreams of Becoming a Tree, A Tree Dreams of Becoming a Bird. Yes, that whole thing, that is the title. A Mouse Dreams of Becoming a Tree, a tree dreams of becoming a bird. And we hope you enjoy it. Until next time, thank you so much for spending time with us. My name is Eric Vetter. I love you all.
which tumble down into my empty grasp. The only way I know, as this beggar down below, get away far, get away fast.